0: All right, if you have a Bible or a device that has a Bible on it, uh, let's go to John 14, or 16 rather, that's our text this morning, beginning in verse 4. John 16, verses 4 through 15, the topic, Jesus had to depart in order for God the Holy Spirit to be sent to live in us as our helper. The title of the message, help, we need somebody's help, but not just anybody's help. Pray with me father thank you for the word of god it is powerful it never returns void it discerns between the soul and the spirit it's a lamp it's a light it's food it's it's all that lord because it's your word because it speaks of jesus christ jesus you said you came in the volume of the book that it was all about you and so i pray that our hearts would remain settled in your love and that our minds would be uh, aware of your presence in our hearts And that by your Holy Spirit, Lord, you would teach us many things that are uh, impossible to know except by your grace. If there's anyone here, Lord, that's not a believer in Jesus Christ, they've never been born again, do your work on their heart, Lord, we pray. And we pray it in Jesus' name and those who agreed said, amen. On Saturdays, when it's possible, the Pensiero grandkids come to help me do yard work. Sweeping, weeding, landscaping, car washing. People who see them remark, I see you have your little helpers. Who else do we think of that has little helpers? Well, Santa Claus, of course, right? His helpers are the elves who spend all year making toys for good little girls and boys. Mom, Pastor Gene believes in Santa Claus. Anyway, <clears throat> it might interest you to know that Santa's little helper is the name of the pet greyhound dog on the Simpsons. And so this idea of helper is very interesting to us. Jesus told his 11 disciples, I do not go away. If I do not go away, rather, the helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send the helper to you. We need a serious change of thinking when it comes to what it means to have a helper. I think sometimes we think of the Holy Spirit the way we think of Santa's elves. That, you know, he's scurrying around trying to get us uh, to do some things. Our helper is God, the Holy Spirit. He was sent on the day of Pentecost. From that day forward, he takes residence in believers the moment we are saved. In verse seven, the Lord said that we have a great advantage thanks to the helper within us. We should take advantage of our advantage. I'll organize my comments around two points. Number one, take advantage of the helper's help in your walk with Jesus. And number two, take advantage of the helper's help in your witness for Jesus. Let's take a look at our walk beginning in verse 4. God lives in you. What a tremendous, tremendous statement. Here are a few verses to corroborate that incredible truth and the text is going to tell us that Jesus or Jesus Christ lives in you. That means he lives in you in the person of God, the Holy Spirit, whom he sent as your helper. In this verses that we're reading today, he said, I'm going to be gone, but I'll send the helper. And so when the apostles say, well, Jesus lives with you, he lives in you, they mean by the Holy Spirit. And so in 2 Corinthians 13, 5, the apostle Paul asked the Corinthian believers this question, do you not realize about yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you? Romans chapter 8, verse 10, but if Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. Galatians 2.20, I am crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but it is Christ who lives in me, and the life which I now live in the flesh, I live in faith, the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. In Colossians 1.27, we read, To whom God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Not only does our help come from the Lord, it is ever-present. One commentator said Jesus Christ isn't outside of us in our time of need. He actually lives in us and is with us all the time. We can believe God the Holy Spirit indwells us, but behave as if his help is far off and late in coming. The Apostle Paul described this tendency as having begun in the Spirit, But then trying to go forward in the flesh, meaning by our own efforts. And so I think the average Christian would say, well, yeah, the Holy Spirit lives in me. God indwells me. But I confess myself, what a nonchalant thing. I guess, you know, I don't want to make up emotion, but it should kind of send chills down your spine. I have a secret to tell you, God lives in me. And he does by virtue of the Holy Spirit. And so it's, it's incredible. So do we actually behave that way? Sometimes not. Jerry Bridges writes, Our reliance on the Spirit is not intended to foster an attitude of I can't do it, but one of I can do it through him who strengthens me. The Christian should never complain of want of ability and power. God lives in you. While you're waiting for him to come, Right? I mean, we, we have that picture in our mind that we're praying and God is far off. The heavens are brass. Ever have people say that? Well, the heavens are like brass to me. My, my prayers aren't getting through. God is in you. He can't get any closer. And he's ready to minister to you. Take advantage of him to do all things through Christ who strengthens you. Verse 4, But in all these things I have told you, that when the time comes, you may remember that I told you them. And these things I did not say to you at the beginning... Because I was with you. The Last Supper being concluded, Jesus led his 11 disciples to the Mount of Olives. Along the way, he taught them. Jesus had just told them that they would be hated and persecuted. While he was with them, he took all of that upon himself. He didn't need to warn them if they would be targets until now at his departure. He says, guys, I've been bearing the brunt of this, but now when I'm gone, they're going to turn on you. Doesn't it sometimes seem that the Lord springs things on you at the last second, and that you don't feel ready? That it, it, you know, it's just, hey, Lord, I'm just not ready for that. I was uh, five years ago. I was with Pam at her uh, neurological appointment, and uh, same doctor we've seen. She's seen for years, uh, and I go in with her, uh, you know, and. just so I know what's going on and all that and so I'm in there so we walk in and we're sitting there you know you're in the waiting room then you're in the second waiting room uh, and then the doctor comes in and, and before she even sat down uh, she, she's a we, we love her Dr. Liu uh, she's Chinese so I'm going to do a Chinese accent not, not, not to be mean or anything but uh, so she, she comes in and, and before she even sits down she looks at me and she goes what's wrong with you? <laughs> uh, what do you mean? she goes you don't look good you, you look terrible I go, well, thank you. You know, I mean, that was. And Pam's saying, "What are you talking about? This is my appointment." She goes, "You, you, you face. You have Parkinson's. You have Parkinson's disease." I go, "Oh, thanks a lot for that." And so uh, I might, you know, I might have been ready for some kind of diagnosis if I had an appointment. So if you make an appointment with the doctor, right? You say, "Oh, I'm just don't. I just do not do not feel right. I have a third arm growing out, or you know, whatever it is." You know, you go to the doctor and, and you're, you're thinking, you, you don't like it because you're a Christian, but you think, "Well, okay, go, I, th- I guess this could be it, God. You know, this could be the one." But you never go to somebody else's doctor's appointment and get diagnosed. I I mean, right? So so, you just don't. And so uh, it's it's funny. (laughs) Poor Pam. She says, can we get back to my appointment now? He can come in tomorrow. And so, oh, man. You're always ready because God indwells you. And you can stay as ready as possible, but just... Walking with the Lord, day by day, in you know day in and day out, and then you know what else you find—that actually you are readied by the Lord. As you look back, you see things happening that got you ready for that thing that was going to happen that you don't think you were ready for. And so, just enjoy the indwelling of God, the Holy Spirit. Take advantage of your advantage. And we don't need to feel like orphans as if the Lord has left us. We couldn't be any closer to him. And it's permanent. Verse 5, but now I go away to him who sent me, and none of you ask me where you're going. But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. The 11 did previously ask Jesus where he was going, specifically Philip and Thomas. They stopped asking, not because Jesus wasn't answering, but because sorrow filled their hearts. Now, people are different. Some tragedy happens and, and you know, your emotions, uh, people's emotions are all over the spectrum. Some people seem somewhat hysterical, others seem too calm. Uh, and so we need to be careful when counseling others that, you know, you can't project your own emotions and feelings onto other people. However, the Apostle Paul, it's interesting, he was bold enough to comfort believers in Thessalonica whose loved ones were dying by saying that he did not want them to sorrow as those who had no hope. And essentially what he was saying in a very diplomatic way was, greet this situation as a Christian ought to. And he he thought that they could and that they should. And so he says, hey, obviously it's grievous. Obviously you sorrow, a loved one is gone. Actually, they were sorrowing even more than we, because they didn't know where their loved one was. If you read First and Second Thessalonians, Paul had talked to them about the rapture of the church, the imminent rapture of the church, and some of them were dying. And they thought, well, what happens to my, my dad, my brother, or my wife who's dead? Did they miss the rapture? Are they left? You know, what, what happens? And they didn't know the things that we know. But Paul, and even then, Paul was saying, hey, be a Christian. Think about how a Christian ought to act in a situation like that and act that way. And you say, I can't do that. Yes, you can, to a certain extent. I mean, you can't do it perfectly, obviously, but you can because why? God lives in you and he can help you to do it. If you allow sorrow to fill your heart, things like depression and discouragement and defeat, it'll drown out that still small voice of the Holy Spirit uh, in the very time that you need him the most. There's a time for every purpose under heaven, we read, Time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance. Know the time that you're in and greet it the way you should. Jesus wanted them to keep asking. For one thing, their give and take was a way of teaching them that would be more memorable than lecturing them. He would give them prompts and clues to figure things out. It's a great way of teaching. I mean, you can just sit somebody down, you know, and, and lecture them. Jesus could have sat down with the 12 guys after he first chose them and said, I'm going to give you the whole outline of what's going to be happening. You know, at this point we're going to be at a well and this woman's going to come out and I'm going to talk to her and you're going to wonder what's going on. A little bit later, they're going to bring a woman caught in adultery and I'm going to have to deal with that and then this is going to happen and that. But instead, the disciples were always kind of puzzled and curious and Jesus waited until they asked him things and then he would share things with them, not even on topic all of the time. And it was a, it was a way of teaching them and growing them up in the Lord. The Bible is written by inspiration in a way that causes you to dig into it in order to discover its rich veins of truth. God's not hiding things from you by doing that. He wants you to experience the joy of finding things out yourself with his helper's help, of course. The Holy Spirit, who inspired the writers of Scripture, now is on board, and he can certainly show you things that are beautiful that are in the scripture that you maybe didn't see, you couldn't have seen before you were a Christian, but now you can see uh, as a Christian. For another thing, the Lord seems to enjoy hearing you ask him for things, even things he's already given to you like the Holy Spirit. Check this out. In the Gospel of Luke, Jesus tells believers to keep on asking for the gift of the Holy Spirit. He says that your father in heaven is a good dad and he won't withhold the Holy Spirit. So keep on asking. It's kind of weird. He won't withhold him, so keep on asking for him. And we are teaching here from John that he's been given to the church, permanently indwells us, so why would we go on asking for him? He is our helper, but we don't like asking for help. How many times have you broken something, ruined something, hurt yourself because you did not want to ask for a friend's help? A lot of you have back trouble because of this very thing. Honey, you probably shouldn't lift that on your, I got it, oh, ho, 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 sciatica is my friend. <laughs> Pam's, you know, if I'm outside doing something, I have to do it when she's not around because she'll say, you can't, you shouldn't lift that by yourself, ask the neighbor. I said, I am not going to ask the neighbor. Then the neighbor comes out and you say, you want some help with that? Sure. Absolutely, you know, I don't know how many times I've re-injured my back over the years by thinking, I can lift that, that's not that bad. Now I look like a dupe, you know, instead of lifting stuff, I push it around, you know. <laughs> Heavy items, I, I, I get ramps and I'm on my hands and knees pushing it around. So, uh, but, you know, it gets the job done without asking for help because no one likes to ask for help. In our hearts, we do that to the Holy Spirit and we say, hey, I got this. I got this situation. You don't got nothing. All you do is break things and hurt yourself or others on your own. So verse 7, nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. If I don't go away, the helper won't come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. Jesus is, you know, one of the things he's saying is this. I'm here in a room with, uh, you know, 11 of you, or now we're out in the Garden of Gethsemane on the Mount of Olives. I'm here with you 11 guys. I'm nowhere else. I am here in the, as the God-man in a human body with you 11 guys. I'm going to go to heaven, and then I'm going to be with every believer all around the world for centuries to come, if necessary, by my Holy Spirit. You see what an advantage that is? it's a great advantage, and Jesus was into it. Now, it's interesting. Jesus rose from the dead in a physical body, and he will remain in that body for eternity. We see that he bears the wounds of his suffering, even. He's described in the Revelation as a lamb that had been sacrificed. Don Stewart writes, Jesus made it clear that he was not a disembodied spirit. He did things only a person having a body can do. He walked, he walked, He showed his disciples the prints of the crucifixion on his body, he breathed air and he ate food. Consequently, both his words and his deeds testify to the fact that his resurrection was bodily. Whereas Jesus is currently seated in heaven, God the Holy Spirit, called the Spirit of Jesus, can indwell every saved individual. A few times in our studies in the Gospel of John, we've said that this permanent indwelling of the believer is unique to saints in the church age. Old Testament saints did not enjoy this permanent indwelling. Here we find another corroboration of this truth. Jesus said he could not send the Holy Spirit unless he first returned to heaven. And so this gift of the Holy Spirit, the permanent indwelling of the Spirit that comes on the day of Pentecost, Jesus said that couldn't happen until I was crucified, rose from the dead, ascended into heaven, uh, and then it could come. Thus, God, the Holy Spirit could not have permanently indwelt believers prior to the ascension of Jesus because he would not be given until after the church was born. The problem, people argue about this because it sounds like you're saying that people didn't get saved the same way in the Old Testament and that you're inventing some new gospel. But listen, the permanent indwelling of God, the Holy Spirit was not necessary for salvation. There is only one way of salvation throughout all of human history from the garden forward. You are saved by grace through faith in God. And, and uh, Abraham, father of the Jewish race, believed God in what? It was accounted unto him for righteousness. Israel had the law of God, but no one was ever saved by keeping the law. They were saved by believing God and accepting his righteousness. Righteousness. Was that a work of the Spirit? Yes. But did the Holy Spirit ever indwell? Yes, he did that too, but not permanently. This is something absolutely unique to the church. It is a mystery revealed in the church age, and we should um, approach it that way. And so everybody always gets saved the same way. There's no different gospel. But God relates to people differently, and in the church age, we have this wonderful gift Jesus is in heaven, told us it was better for us that he stay there. I gave you some reasons why, but I want to suggest for your consideration that this might have some bearing on our understanding of what happens with the elements when we celebrate the Lord's Supper. This isn't a teaching about the Lord's Supper, but they had just had the Lord's Supper, and they had the Lord of the Supper with them, and he would, whatever he said was from the point of view uh, of, of truth. And so here's some things about the Lord's Supper. We celebrate the Lord's Supper, and a lot of Protestants do, as a memorial. The bread and the juice represent Jesus' body and blood. They are symbols of the body and blood of Christ. In the Roman Catholic tradition I grew up in, and this is a quote, the change of the whole substance of bread into the substance of the body of Christ and of the whole substance of wine into the substance of the blood of Christ. Put simply, the elements are believed to become the body and blood of Jesus Christ. that They are literally the body and blood of Christ. Lutherans and others have yet another view saying, and I quote, the substance of the body and blood of Christ are present alongside the substance of the bread and wine. In other words, the Lord is physically present there but not in the elements themselves. Now, thinking about what we just read and, and, and all, making application of this, Bishop J. C. Ryle writes, It is not the bodily presence of Jesus Christ in the midst of us so much as the presence of the Holy Spirit in our hearts that is essential. What we should all desire and long for is not Christ's body literally touched with our hands and received into our mouths, but Christ dwelling spiritually in our hearts by the grace of the Holy Spirit. In other words, this whole idea that Jesus comes literally and physically to us in communion contradicts what jesus said that i am going to heaven and guess what i'll be with you always every minute of every day not just sundays when you take mass by the person of the holy spirit so meditate on that think on that now drop down to verse 12 i still have many things to say but you cannot bear them now however when he the spirit of truth has come he will guide you into all truth For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak and he will tell you things to come. You can't handle the truth is what he was saying to his disciples. Not yet. He wasn't prepping them for more suffering as much as he was encouraging them that they would be enabled to know and comprehend spiritual truth after the spirit was in them. Jesus emphasized during his earthly ministry that he only did and said what his father told him. He and the Father were always in agreement. Likewise, God the Holy Spirit would be in sync and in agreement with the Father and Son. It's kind of like, in a, this is a limited illustration, but you'll get it. When your kids are old enough to try and split mom and dad, right, they, they ask mom something first, sometimes they ask dad, and they're trying to get a contrary opinion, and it just blows their mind when you agree. You know, you're, you're like, hey, dad, can I go to that party? No. Mom, can I go? Sure. Ah, I've split them it's like it's better than splitting the atom you know it's, it's a, but when parents all have the same game face on it's a, it defeats them and so God the Father God the Son God the Spirit all in absolute harmony with one another one practical thing this means is that God the Holy Spirit will never act independently in ways that contradict what has been revealed in the word of God No prophecy can be attributed to him that does not line up with the Bible. No gift of his can rightfully be exercised in a manner contrary to his own instruction for doing so in the Bible. It doesn't quench the Holy Spirit to test behavior and belief that people attribute to him according to God's word. If anything, it would enhance that and it would make it seem more genuine. And so uh, tuck that away as well. Things to come at the end of verse 13 are things after Jesus sent the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. They would include the mystery of the church, the coming of Jesus to resurrect and rapture the church, the security of the church in heaven during the seven-year great tribulation, and the second coming of Jesus with the church to end the battle of Armageddon and establish the 1,000-year kingdom of God on the earth. He will glorify me, verse 14, for he will take of what is mine and declare it to you. God the Holy Spirit glorifies Jesus. Since he is in you, he encourages you to glorify Jesus in all that you do. Along those lines, D.L. Moody wrote, There are many of us that are willing to do great things for the Lord, but few of us are willing to do the little things. Uh, Do little things well, not because they're little, but because they're for the Lord. Whether it's a little thing or a big thing, who's doing it? The Lord is doing it through you. He's using you. And it's worthy of doing it right and doing it skillfully and doing it according to the Lord's uh, timing and, and things like that. And so, in fact, we need to quit thinking of little things, big things, and just think that we're all the servants of the Lord and, and we will stand before him and no one else when we receive our rewards in heaven. There's not gonna be a panel of our peers who say, well, you know, I give Gina 6.5, you know, I mean, all that stuff, you know, here and there. So it's 6.5. I mean, none of those people are going to be around. It's just you and the Lord. And so be faithful in big things and little things. The point here is that don't long for big things or think that you're too good to do a little thing. Any genuine work of God must glorify Jesus, not a man, not a movement. As stated by William MacDonald, by this we can test all teaching and preaching, If it has the effect of magnifying the Savior, then it is of the Holy Spirit. Verse 15, all things that the Father are mine, therefore I said that he will take of mine and declare it to you. The things that the Father has include his divine attributes. Jesus says those same attributes are his. They are equal. We list the attributes of God to answer questions like, who is God? What is God like? What kind of God is he? Besides the big four omnis, omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent, and omnibenevolent, all good. God is infinite, he's immutable, he's self-sufficient. All lists of these divine attributes differ. Some say there are five essential attributes, others as many as 20. Jesus didn't give the disciples a list of his attributes with their definitions. He simply lived out the attributes of God and exampled them in every situation. Who is God? What is he like? What kind of God is he? Jesus, his words and works, answers those questions. Director Peter Jackson succeeded in making us forget that help was on the way to Helm's Deep at the end of the Two Towers. Defeat at the hand of Sauron and his Urukai army was upon the people of Rohan when suddenly Gandalf came with reinforcements, just as he promised on the first light of the fifth day from the east at dawn. The devil, the world he is the ruler over, and our own flesh often succeed in making you forget our help comes from the Lord and the Lord is in us. Take advantage of the helper's help in your witness. There is not a better evangelist in the world than the Holy Spirit, said D.L. Moody. He ought to know he preached to hundreds of thousands and saw multitudes saved. The verses we skipped over give insight to the working of God the Holy Spirit with regards to the gospel. Verse 8, When he has come, he will convict the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. World here refers to earth's inhabitants who are unbelievers. The Holy Spirit accomplishes his convicting work in a partnership with believers. That is to say, since he is in us, it is our interaction with unbelievers that gives him opportunity to interact with those the Lord loves who are perishing. Verse 9, he'll convict of sin because they do not believe in me, of righteousness because I go to my father and you see me no more, and of judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. Sin and righteousness and judgment focus our minds on what you could call the big picture of the world. Sin is the universal problem. Any philosophy or psychology or any, anything that doesn't immediately mention sin is the problem has problems. Because they're going to try and solve the problem of sin some other way. Uh, They're going to tell you that the environment is the problem, or you know something else is the problem. Your upbringing was the problem. You were a blank slate, and then the the world wrote things on you, or your parents wrote things on you. Babies are not a blank slate. They're 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 little sinners. I'm fond of telling you this. What do you think they're crying about? Does your baby laugh? do you ever has anybody ever said, "Hey, you look tired? Why is that? My baby was laughing all night? Just kept laughing, laughing, laughing with the joy of the Lord. I kept I begged it to please cry, but it wouldn't cry. I tried to feed it. It said, "Not now, mom, I'm too busy. It would be a bummer for you to have to get out of bed. I'll just wait. We're sinners from the womb, uh, and, and so it's a you know uh, I figure out where I am now. But anyway, oh, yeah, sin, the universal problem. Our parents, Adam and Eve, disobeyed God. They defied his one simple command. Their sin brought death into the human race. You sin, you die, paraphrases what God warned them. Sin is now imputed to us. We inherit a sin nature, and then we grow up to commit individual acts of sin. Righteousness sums up what is needed to counter sin, In the Garden of Eden, after they sinned, God explained to Adam and Eve how he was going to overcome it. He would himself enter the human race in a way that did not impute sin to him and by which he would not have a sin nature. That way was the virgin birth. Uh, He would then live among humans and never commit an individual sin. This perfect righteousness of his would be offered as a free gift to any who would believe on him. He would take their sin upon himself at the cross and give them his righteousness. Judgment. Jesus' offer of righteousness has an expiration date. A sinner has only so much time in this current lifetime to believe in Jesus. Die in sin in your unrighteousness and severe judgment follows. There is no second chance. Uh, It'll be over. God the Holy Spirit is tasked tasked with convicting unbelievers that they are dead and headed for eternal death (laughs) unless they receive Jesus Christ. Since he lives in us, it is through our lives, through our witness, through our words and our works and our walk, that unbelievers are exposed to his conviction. They're convicted of sin, it says, because they do not believe in Jesus. You do believe, and they see that your life has been transformed, and that transformation cannot be denied. Without getting into specifics, do you think if one minute you you didn't have God living in you, and then the next second you did, do you think you'd be a different person? Well, the Bible says you're a whole new creation in Jesus Christ, and people can notice that. They'll notice it in your walk, and in your words, and in your witness, and uh, that's what he's talking about because we're the ones who the Holy Spirit uses uh, in order to reach people. They're convicted of righteousness because Jesus went to the Father and was seen no more. His return to heaven proved he lived a perfect life And now was able to offer that righteousness to be the savior of the whole world, especially those who believe. And they're convicted of judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. If this super powerful yet malevolent being Satan was judged at the cross by Jesus Christ, what hope does a non-believer have to stand before the Lord who is part of his kingdom? None. Thunderstruck was a 2012 movie that no one saw. Anybody see Thunderstruck? It's not a bad movie. I didn't see it. The plot follows a boy who magically gets pro basketball player Kevin Durant's skills. Needless to say, he dominates his high school team. It's not a great illustration, but I think you get it. If you were playing pickup basketball and Kevin Durant was on your team, you'd do everything you could to get the ball to him. If he wanted you to dribble or to pass or to shoot, you'd listen to his instruction about how to do that successfully. What you wouldn't do is leave him on the bench and say, I got this, and then get pummeled by, you know, the guys on the other team. Take advantage of your advantage. God lives with you. This isn't a personal rebuke. It's a, it's a rebuke to everybody. Paul said to the Galatians, we have this tendency, beginning in the spirit, to be made perfect in the flesh. And he could have said in in this illustration, hey, we have a tendency to leave the Holy Spirit sitting on the bench while we try and figure out life on our own and try and advance the kingdom on our own and do everything on our own. Let the Holy Spirit lead and guide you. He indwells you. Ask for him, not because you don't have him, but because you do. And you're not prone to asking for help. Start asking for help. Start screaming for it. And watch what the Lord does.